Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse four. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. It's why we're here. Because you love us. You care for us. You made us. You saved us. You redeemed us. You want to change us. So do that this morning, Lord. Because of your great love for us, change us. Make us more like you as we study and as we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't pick this passage just because Valentine's Day is this week. Um, I get to fill in periodically for Matt. Maybe some of you guys have been here. And I've been working my way through this passage. So we talked about how love is patient. We talked about how love is kind. We talked about the big three, envy, boasting, and pride. And now I'm gonna skip forward a few because I wanna do a fun one, one I've really been looking forward to. And we're gonna do this. Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. It's a cool little phrase. It's one of those phrases that seems like every translation of the Bible translates it differently. So let me give you a few of the other ones that I really like. They all mean the same thing. They just kind of take at it from a different angle. Love is not resentful or love keeps no record of wrongs. That's the one we all know. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love thinketh no evil. That's probably King James. Love does not brood over wrongs. Ooh, that's a little different take on that. Just brooding over wrongs. Love doesn't do that. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That might be my favorite. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The concept's simple. Your actions are not supposed to inhibit my love. Simple, right? Yeah, that's easy. How do we do that? Fred Shuttlesworth was an African-American pastor involved in the civil rights campaign in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s with Martin Luther King. Because of his active role in the civil rights campaign, he was repeatedly harassed and brutalized by both KKK and police. December 25th, Christmas Day, 1967, his house was bombed into rubble while he was sleeping inside of it. He emerged unscathed, but everything he owned was destroyed. Later that same year, same year, him and his wife are trying to take his daughter to school and their car is surrounded by protesters. And when Shuttlesworth gets out to try and make a pathway to the school for his daughter, he's beaten with brass knuckles and chains and someone stabs his wife. 
She survives, but he has to rush her to the hospital. Time and time and time again, this happens. And in this beautiful account, one historian wrote this of one of the times that Shuttlesworth was arrested. The officer struck him, kicked him in the shins, called him a monkey, and then goaded him saying, why don't you hit me? Shuttlesworth replied, because I love you. Then he folded his arms and smiled all the way to jail, where, forbidden to pray or sing, he took a nap. How do we love like that? How do I love like that? Because I can't forgive my neighbor for putting his fence line five feet on my side of the property. Right? Like that is my poison oak bush. Don't you dare put your fence over here. All those itches are for me. We can't forgive Aunt Edna for what she said at the Christmas party five years ago after all that eggnog, right? (laughs) How am I supposed to love like this? How am I supposed to love like Joseph, whose brothers throw him in a pit and sell him for slavery? And then bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens in his life, and he could trace him all back to that time when his brothers betrayed him and he could just meditate on that and get madder and madder. Just think about revenge. And then one day he becomes the second most powerful person in the world. And man, could he have wreaked revenge? I mean, the revenge that he could have took on his brothers would have been Hollywood movie status. Wipe them off the face of the planet. Is that what he does? No, he protects his brothers. He loves his brothers. He feeds his brothers. And he says, hey, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. How do I love like that? Because some of us, you know, you might still be mad at your husband for spending four hours last Sunday watching a football game and then two more hours complaining about how boring it was. (laughs) Jesus is dying on the cross. He's bleeding out. He's exhausted and he takes every ounce of energy he has to stand up on those spikes and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do I love like that? Because that's the kind of love that transforms a family. That's the kind of love that repairs a marriage. That's the kind of love that changes a place like Birmingham, Alabama or Grants Pass, Oregon. How do I love like that? Simple question, how do we do that? And I've been really thinking about this and wrestling with this and praying through this. And here's the thing, I think there's only one way. There's only one way for us to even begin to love like that, and that's this. We have to really understand that that's how we're loved. That is how God loved me. As I sin against him and I kick him in the shins and I strike him and I go to him, he just looks at me and says, I, I love you. I love you. So that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at how much God loves us. It's gonna be a super fun message. It is, it's gonna be God loves you this much. I have three areas. There's hundreds of areas that we could talk about. These are the three for me. When I look at this list, and I say, God isn't resentful against me, and God keeps no record of wrongs on me, and God does not take into account a wrong suffered by me, there's three things that jump out at me that I'm like, yes, 
This is what that makes possible for me. This is what that means to me. Maybe to you it means some other things. Awesome. Meditate on those this next week. For the next 25 minutes, listen to me. Here's what it means to me. The first thing that this means to me, that God loves me this way, is that it makes it, it gives an opportunity for me to actually have a relationship with God. Without that kind of love, I could not have a relationship with God. Turn to Hebrews chapter four. It's talking about just that. Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 14, it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 16, just again, real quick. Let us then with boldness draw near to the throne of grace. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we do know who it was written to. It was written to first century Jews. A lot of the New Testament is written to Gentiles. Hebrews specifically written to Jews. If you were a first century Jew, this statement would be shocking. Unbelievable. Paradigm changing. Because here's what you know, and here's what you've grown up believing about God. There's a temple, it's in Jerusalem. It's got a whole bunch of rooms, but there's one room right in the middle of the temple. It's called the holiest of holies. And that's where God lives. This is your mentality. That's where God lives. He lives in that room. In that room is the Ark of the Covenant. On top of it is this beautiful thing called the mercy seat. And one day of the year, one person, the chief priest of all Israel, if he is completely clean of sins, can go into that room, into the presence of God and ask for mercy for everybody else. That's what you believe to be true. And then this verse comes along and the cross comes along and Jesus comes along and we're told that's not true anymore. Anybody at any time for any reason can come boldly into the throne room of grace and receive mercy and grace and help. That's unbelievable. What used to kill you, if you went into that room with sin in your life, you'd die, right? How would that work out for us? If we prayed and then we'd just die, right? What used to kill you is now something offered freely and given, come before God's throne. And when we come before God's throne, the almighty judge and creator of the universe, what does this verse say that we receive? 
grace and mercy and help. Not judgment and condemnation, okay? But not like acceptance and free love over here early either, right? Mercy implies that there was a mistake. You, you need mercy because there was wrong done. But that's what we receive, grace and mercy. Here's the thing. The kind of radical love we're talking about this morning, right? The kind of Fred Shuttlesworth, Joseph, Jesus love, keeps no record of wrongs, that doesn't take those things into account, that for, can forgive like that and change families and communities, it doesn't come naturally. I don't know if you knew that. At least it doesn't come naturally for me. It has to be pursued. And the only way it can be pursued is by spending time in the person and presence of Jesus. And because he keeps no record of wrongs on me, that's available every single day. My sin against God will never make him unapproachable to me. My sin against God will never make him unapproachable to me. I come daily and receive grace and mercy. And when I'm full of that grace and mercy, I can try to extend grace and mercy. It's such a cool thing. It's so beautiful to me. But here's the question. Why don't I take more advantage of it? If that's what I need, why don't I take more advantage of it? Because any of us who've walked as a Christian for long enough know this. If I spend a good amount of time in prayer, in my word, praising and meditating on the things of God, I tend to be more or less gracious in my life with other people. It's not a hard question. <laughs> more gracious, more merciful, more forgiving. But when I spend more time on my own stuff, I tend to be shorter tempered, quicker to judge, less patient with people. So if I know this, why don't I spend more time with God in his presence at the throne room because it's available? And the first reason I don't is just, I haven't made it a priority. I might not really understand what I'm missing out on. I might not really grasp what it is that's available to me. I'm just too busy. I've got work and I've got kids and I've got kids sports and I've got hobbies and I volunteer at the church. And I mean, there's always Netflix. And so I don't make this a priority and I'm guilty of this. You guys know we have a, um, a prayer service all year long this year, it's a year of prayer, 6.30 to 7.30 every Monday morning at the church office. Do you guys know that? Okay, cool. Um, I haven't seen you there. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've only gone once, so maybe you were all there. I don't know. <laughs> That's the thing. I've only gone once. It's me. The first two times I was on vacation, okay? So I'll give myself that. The third time I went, of course, I was leading it, so <laughs> I had to be there. We've only had five, so the last two weeks, I said this, okay? I'm not going to go because I'm gonna get up early, I'm preparing for this message. Say, I'm gonna get up early in my house and I'm gonna study and I'm gonna read and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna prepare for this message, which is great, but I didn't do it. I just hit the snooze alarm for an hour. I need to make this more of a priority. If I really want to love like that, 
I have to spend as much time in the person and presence of Jesus Christ as I possibly can because it's available to me. It's available to me. Happy Valentine's Day. You can walk to God anytime you want and get grace and mercy. How cool is that? Amen? That's so cool. But we don't because we're too busy or, and this is the really dangerous one. The other reason that we don't take full advantage of this is because we feel ashamed. Like we aren't worthy to come boldly before God. Like he's disappointed in us or angry at us. And here's the thing, that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. It's exactly where our enemy wants you to be. That's his one-two punch. That's exactly what he does. He does this. First, he comes over here and he's like, come on, dude, sin. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be super fun. Everybody's doing it. Or the classic, remember like, did he really say, right? The, the old one in the garden, did God really say you can't do that? And then as soon as we do, and I do, because I'm a sinner, what does Satan do? He turns around on me and goes, I cannot believe you did that. You're disgusting. You're horrible. You're awful. God's ashamed of you. Don't go to church. Anyone ever heard that narrative in their own heart? Don't raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. I have. I've heard that narrative. It's a lie. It's a dirty, rotten lie. God doesn't see us that way. But it's so effective because here's what happens. Sin makes me feel naked and ashamed. It's how it's always worked. That's how it worked in the garden. Genesis three, Adam and Eve sinned. What do they feel? Naked and ashamed. And so what do I do? I trip over a mic. I hide. I hide from God. But go to that story in the garden. Who pursues Adam and Eve? Who comes after Adam and Eve? Who comes to redeem Adam and Eve? God does. This is the second truth. The first truth is this. Because God keeps no record of wrongs, I can always go boldly in front of him. The second truth is this. Because God keeps no record of wrongs on me, I should never feel shame. Shame is not from God. Conviction is from God. Conviction makes me want to change. Shame makes me want to hide. And God does not want me to feel ashamed. And when we feel naked and ashamed over and over again, God says, let me cover you. That's what he does in Genesis three. He comes in and he clothes them. And there's this narrative all the way through the Bible. God will clothe you. God will cover you. And it's God who does it. Let me read you a few. They're super cool. I don't want you to turn there. Just listen. Isaiah 61.10 says this. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me. Who clothed us? God clothed us in righteousness and garments of salvation as a bridegroom decks himself with garland. God will come and clothe us with his righteousness so we don't need to feel ashamed. That's the gospel. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And we don't have to feel shame anymore because he's covered us. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 57. I just love this passage. It says this, for the perishable body, 
perishable. For the perishable body, that's me, must put on the imperishable, that's Jesus. And this mortal body, me, must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, which we do by accepting that gift that God's given us. When we put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass this saying, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's where our enemy wants us. He wants us in this place of shame so that we don't come to God and ask to be covered. But when we do and we come to him and we ask him to be covered, he covers us with his righteousness and it takes all the sting out of death. That's what this says. Death, where's your sting? Because verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Shame is not from God. And if you're sitting out there today and you're thinking back on your life and the things you've done and the mistakes you've made and the way you've treated people and you feel ashamed and you wanna hide, that's not from your father. Your father wants to love you and forgive you and cover you, amen? So there's your second Valentine's Day gift. I've got one more point, but before I do that, I just wanna get kind of practical for a few minutes because here's what we've done. We've looked at two things that this idea that love doesn't keep wrong does for me. First is it gives me access to God. No matter what I've done, I can have access. Second is I should never feel shame, right? So how am I doing on those accounts? Am I approachable? Like God is? Do I make it so that people who've wronged me still feel like they can approach me? It's a good question. I was having this conversation with Chad Hansen a couple months ago, because I don't work for the church. I own a business where we do service work. And I went out to a guy's house maybe six, seven months ago and installed a bunch of equipment, did a bunch of service work, a couple thousand dollars worth of, of stuff. And he refuses to pay me. Won't return my calls, won't return my texts. So I drove to his house and then I left when his wife came out the front door yelling and screaming and cussing at me. And so I was talking to Chad about this. I'm like, what do I do? Because I get the grace and mercy part. I get that. But what's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. And you shouldn't get away with that. And there should be justice. How do I balance that? And here's what Chad said. And I think he's dead right. He says, no matter how you decide to handle this, make sure that if someday that man finally decides that he wants to come to God to see grace and mercy and he walks in those church doors and he sees you, he doesn't turn around and leave. I still don't know what to do. Um, (laughs) But I at least know that should be the standard. I should still be approachable. I shouldn't close that door even while pursuing justice and what's right. Am I that way with my kids? Have I made my door open for my kids when they've made mistakes and when they've come to me and they've done wrong? I was actually talking with my wife about this this morning. And I was thinking about Jesus and the way he deals with sinners. And when he says things like, go and sin no more, right? He says that, and that's important. 
That's huge. We need change. We need conviction. We need consequences, especially dealing with our children. Go and sin no more. But when does Jesus say that? Does he say that at the beginning of the conversation? He say that at the end of the conversation. He says it at the end. It's what Matt talked about with the chairs, that God front loads acceptance. When you come to God as a sinner, first you get grace and mercy and forgiveness. Then you get correction. And so often I think we do that wrong as parents. Sometimes I think our parents did it wrong and maybe that's why we have so much trouble understanding this. Your child comes to you, you go to your parents. Here's what I did wrong. First you get correction. You need to say you're sorry, you need to do this, you need to do that. And then once you do, you get grace and mercy and forgiveness. I don't think that's right. I think that the way that we should do this is when our children come to us, when people come to us, we start out with, Okay, honey, I love you. No matter what you did, that can't change the fact that I love you. I will always love you and I forgive you. Now we need to talk about consequences and changing. And I don't know why we think that giving them love and forgiveness and acceptance first takes all the power out of the consequences because I think it's the opposite. I think it gives the consequences more power and the lesson more potency And we've left our door open for our kids to come to us. It's just something I'm thinking about. My kids are young, so ask me in a few years when they come with real problems. (laughs) Do I ever make my kids feel shame by lashing out or coworkers or wife? Do I ever make people feel shame? Do I allow myself to look past people's sins or do I make people feel guilty for their old mistakes? Do I really forgive people? So my wife was telling me this. She's brilliant. All our wives are brilliant. You guys know that? Your wife's brilliant. You should listen more. Um, it's a free Valentine's Day piece of advice. <laughs> It'll go well with you. Um, she says, I know that I've truly forgiven someone who has wronged and hurt me. When their name comes up in conversation, And I do not tell those other people about the wrong I suffered by that person. Because you can say that you've forgiven someone, but if their name comes up in conversation, the first thing we do is tell everybody else how they hurt us and how they despitefully used us and what they did to us. We haven't forgiven them. I haven't forgiven them. God doesn't do that to me. When my name comes up in conversation, he doesn't rehash this list of ways that I've hurt him. Why? Because he's forgiven me because he's forgiven you, because he loves us. And when we get that, I think we can extend it a little bit more. Okay, final point is this. God doesn't keep lists of my wrongs. He's not keeping score. That's this one. God's not keeping score. Go to Psalm 103. We're gonna end here. One hundred and three, verse ten. He, God, does not deal with us according to our sins, Amen. Nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, everyone's heard that verse. Love this verse. Because here's what it means. God's not keeping score. He's not keeping score on me. Because here's what I can do. I can understand that I have access to God. I can try and wrap my head around that. And I can even try and be better about taking access to it. And I can try and combat the enemy when he tries to give me shame, knowing that that's not how God wants me to feel. He wants me to feel covered and loved. But I can still think that somewhere God's sitting up there and being like, okay, yeah, I love James. Yeah, James always has access to my throne. Yeah, I never want James to feel shame. But let's not kid ourselves. He's no Mark Scudstead. He's no Billy Graham. I mean, he's great and I love him. But I mean, there was the time he did this and there was the time he did this and there was the time he did that and there was the time he said he was gonna do this and he didn't. So I love him, but I mean, you know, Mark Scudstead or Billy Graham or no. God's not keeping score. And what that means is there's nothing I can do to make him love me anymore. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. He loves you as much as he loves Billy Graham or whoever you hold up on that pedestal. In fact, God loves you as much as he loves his son. That's the gospel. That's what it means when we put on righteousness. God loves you when you've accepted the gift that his son has given you the way he loves his son. And I love that. How many people love that? We love that. God loves me the way he loves his son. But the problem is I have to turn around and do it this way too because we always see ourselves positionally, right? I'm not as good as them, but I'm better than. So God loves me as much as he loves Billy Graham or Jesus, but he also loves the drug dealer on my street that much. And he loves that person who despitefully used me that much. And that person who hurt me and broke my heart that much. He loves them that much too. And just as he's not keeping a list about all the ways that I've hurt him, he's not keeping a list about all the ways that they hurt him. He doesn't keep a list. He doesn't keep score. And when I get this, that he loves them as much as he loves me, it frees me up to stop keeping score. Because I do this. We keep score. And we have all these lists of people, right? And we think about a person, we just pull out their tally sheet in our heads. And we're like, well, you know, they didn't return my phone call, minus 100 points. Right? They were late for our meeting, minus 50 points. Forgot my birthday, minus 25. Bought me a present, plus 100. It was the wrong size, minus 50. And we keep these lists on people. And it's exhausting because pretty soon, if you have a list on every person that you have a relationship with, you've got to have somewhere to store your lists. And you know what you end up with? Baggage. That's what baggage is. 
it's bags of lists of all the things that everyone's done that's hurt you. And every time you run into someone, you gotta pull out the list and look at their tally sheet. And it's exhausting. And it's damaging. I don't think it's any more damaging than in marriage. Because we do this. Because here's what the Bible says about marriage. Here's what Ephesians 5 says about marriage. It says that marriage, the way that you husbands treat your spouse, the way that you spouses treat your husbands, it's supposed to be a picture of the way that Jesus loves the church. And what's one of the most unique identifying features of the way Jesus loves the church? He doesn't keep a record of wrongs on us. His love's unconditional. He doesn't have this tally sheet against us. But every time I talk to someone who's struggling in their marriage, the first thing they want to do is pull out the list. They didn't do this and she does that and they always do this and she doesn't always do this. And the problem is that list becomes that person's identity to us. When we think about that person, all we think about is that list. And then it just goes over in our head. They did this and they did that and they didn't do this. Right? We just meditate on it. And it's not healthy and it's not helpful. Does God keep lists on us? Does God keep lists on us? No, actually he does. So I think he does. But here's what I think God does. I think God has the list of all the ways that he loves you, of all the ways that you're unique, of all the little things that you've done that blessed his heart. Like we're like children to God. I mean, my daughter will draw me a little heart on a piece of paper and give it to me. That blesses me. Some of my things are to God that way. They seem little and insignificant to me and they bless our father. I think God has a list like that on every single person in here. And I think when he thinks about you, that's the list he pulls out. Oh, James did this and James loves me this way and Peter loves me this way and Peter said this about me and Peter shared me with this person and Zeb did this and Matt did this and that's his list. So here's my challenge to us then if we're gonna take this idea of the way God treats us and try and swivel it around to the way we treat other people, how about you make a list like that on your spouse? All the things that you love about him, all the things you're thankful about him and that's the narrative that we play. Any of your kids ever bother you? Just get on your nerves? No. Okay. Well, someday it'll happen. And when it does, just remember what I'm about to say. I, I can have an interaction. My daughter's only five, so it's not like they're super difficult interactions. But sometimes she can be difficult or whatever. And I, I can go out about my day and I can be thinking about it. I can't believe she said that. And I can't believe she did this. And I can't believe she reacted that way. And I just have to stop myself. I'm not playing that list in my head all day long about someone I love. I'm not playing that list all day long in my head about someone God loves. I'm gonna make a new list. I love the way she does this. I love the way she does that. I love the way she talks with her mother. I love the way she takes care of. And I'm gonna meditate on that list all day long. I think that's what God does for us. I think that's what he wants us to do for other people. I think if we do that, marriages will change. Relationships will change. Don't keep score. Here's how Psalms 103 ends up. He tells us why. As 113, he says, go back to 12. He says, he throws our sins as far as east is from the west. Verse 13, because as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He remembers who we really are. 
And I think the key for me to love people the way God loves them is to remember who I really am. I gave this illustration once previously. My wife says I should give it again. I tend not to because it's one of those that actually makes me look good. I like the illustrations that make me look bad because I don't have many that make me look good. But every once in a while, you guys, every once in a while you pull something off and you're like, okay, that was probably a pretty good plan, all right? So I used to work in a grocery store at a check stand. And if you ever wanna test your patience with people, work at a grocery store check stand in downtown Portland, okay? And people would just drive me crazy. I like, I'm not totally a people person. I mean, I like all you guys, obviously, but I'm one of those people that people can get on my nerves. And I was struggling. I would go to work and people would just tick me off the way we'd go too fast or go too slow or talk to their wives or talk to their kids or be on their cell phones or be reading the magazines or the way they stack their groceries. Just, mm, mm. Don't write checks. It's the 21st century. You know how long my line is now? Thank you. What do you mean double, double paper, double plastic? Right? And it just, it wasn't good. So I came up with a plan and it worked. And what I did was I took a permanent marker and I wrote grace on my hand right here. Big grace. Because as a checker, you stand there, right? And you, you, this is the hand you're using. Beep, 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 right? And every time it would come by, grace, Grace, beep, grace, beep, grace, beep, grace. And it was not to remind me to give them grace because I can't do that. It was to remind me how much grace I've been given. Like, beep, I need grace. Beep, I'm a screw up. Beep, I can't believe he forgives me. Beep, he loves me so much. Beep, he loves you the same. That's crazy. Beep, as... But it worked. It really helped me to understand, oh, how much I've been given. Oh, how much I've been loved. I'm not Fred Shuttlesworth. Like, I'm the police officer. And I kicked him and punched him and goaded him and he kept loving me. And when I meditate on that and I think about it and I go back through this list, I mean, he's given me access he never wants me to feel shamed. He thinks of me as an all-star. It starts to fill me up in a way that can start to flow out. You get it? And we can start to treat people the way we're supposed to be treated. Because here's the thing. I'm supposed to treat people the way God treats me. And when I'm struggling with that, I have to come back to how beautiful it is that God treats me that way and how undeserving I am, even though he loves me anyways, and it fills me up. Then I can love that way. Amen? All right, thank you guys. Father, I just thank you for your truth here, that you love us. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more. That when we simply come and accept the gift you've given us. You don't see our sin anymore. You don't see our mistakes. You see the things you love about us and how beautiful we are. You want us to come to you to get mercy and grace. Help us to be people full of mercy and grace that extend it to others, that love people that way. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.